so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. You know, like in Spanish, like corazón. It has a little doot doot on the end. <laughs> There's a doot doot? I don't know what it's called. It's a little about an like accent, a tilde, uh, an accent, whatever that's called. <laughs> wow! But that's what oh, you do. Oh, this has gone off the rails. It is. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me in the virtual studio today are my co-host Lindsay Nicolay. Good morning on this uh, beautiful sunny day out the window, but a stormy rainy day in my heart because we're bidding our wonderful audio engineer in the fourth dimension a farewell. That's right, man. What a way for me to bring Brent into the show. Brent, say hello. Howdy. And I've got my my tissues right here next to me as we, uh, we bid adieu to everyone's favorite brisket chef. Gary Lancaster. That's right. I know you can't see me, audience, but I'm literally wearing sackcloth and ashes. Uh, I just thought it was appropriate for this particular episode. Uh, I was talking to Gary earlier this week about his farewell, and actually, we're going to interview him later in the show. So he's our special guest today, and we are pumped about that. Uh, but I was talking to Gary earlier this week, and I mentioned the fact that, look, we, we know we talk about Gary on the podcast all the time, but audience, I have no idea how many times you've ever heard of him because he is notorious for eliminating references to himself in the products that he produces. So this may be your very first introduction to Gary Lancaster. He is a true professional. He is amazing and excellent. All of the accolades that you could think of. And so in any in any case, we're excited to do this interview with him. So if for the very first time, you will still get to meet and hear from Gary Lancaster before he, as I said earlier this week, rides off into the sunset. Lindsay, so that we can get into the show, tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week. Well, this week on our site, we had a special emphasis on life and particularly life in the womb. Uh, and so we have highlighted an explainer by Chelsea Patterson Sobolik, who faithfully works in our D.C. office. And she is explaining this bill that we've talked about before, the Born Alive Bill. And the title of this explainer is What You Should Know About the Debate in Congress Over the Born Alive Bill. So there's been some movement on this bill that was introduced in first in 2019. And what has happened is a discharge petition has been filed, which I'm going to ask more from my colleagues here, Brent and Josh, because a lot of this language I do not understand, and maybe some of you listening don't understand either. But this seeks to force a floor vote for this life-saving bill. This Born Alive bill is something that should be a no-brainer. It is if children are born alive after an abortion procedure, life-saving measures will be given to that child, which again, is a no-brainer. We should be doing this. We should be uh, taking care of these children. We should be making sure that everything possible is done to save save their lives. But it's been coming up against some pushback. So before I try to explain this further, I'm going to turn to Brent and Josh and ask them for some explanation. Yeah, no, you did, uh, you, you did a great job explaining it. So a discharge petition is, is exactly what you read. It, it is a uh, parliamentary uh, procedure that members of Congress can use should they get the requisite uh, number of signatures to bypass the committee structure in order to bring legislation directly to uh, the floor, the House floor, uh, for debate and consideration and, and ultimately a vote. Uh, the good news is with this one, uh, we actually got more folks to sign on for this discharge petition that we did in the previous Congress, which shows, uh, you know, incrementally uh, some healthy growth in terms of uh, momentum uh, building for uh, this. I mean, honestly, this is a 
no-brainer pro-life bill. If you have a child born, medical care should immediately be given to that child, whether the intention was to take that child's life or not. Let's give this, this individual the medical care that they need. And that's what this bill does. And so it, 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 it is beyond uh, words and beyond frustration that, that this kind of legislation can't be passed easily. Yeah, I think we just need to make the point that, look, we are in the fight to end abortion. Like that is the heartbeat of the ERLC. But this particular issue, it takes the debate outside of the abortion conversation. We're talking about not a child in the womb any longer, but a human being who is laying there on a table. We're talking about a child who has been born and is alive. And just because its mother may have intended to abort it, once that child is outside the womb, we all agree that that person is a person who deserves all of the rights, privileges, protections, and freedoms that any American would deserve. And so in the United States, it is just unconscionable to think about letting a child lay there and die when everything is available to offer life-saving medical care. That is just insane. And as you guys have said, it's a no-brainer. And that's why this is so important. So look, if you if you're part of our uh, coalition here at the ERLC supporting the work that we're doing, know that this is the kind of work that we are fighting for every day. And progress is being made. It is incremental and slow, but we are fighting for it every single day. And this ties into to something else. I'm going to get on a soapbox here. At the state level, Brent, a number of- When you get on soapboxes, just bring it on. There you go. Yeah. At the at the state level, there are a number of states that over the last few years have have tried to pass- uh, what's known as admitting privileges. So if you are a medical professional that is engaged in, in this, uh, the procedure of an abortion, and there are complications either like this, where a child is born and is, is alive and requires medical attention, or uh, something happens with the mother where she requires uh, medical attention, it, it is only common sense that that medical professional should be able to walk into a hospital to explain what has gone on to another physician so that the medical treatment can be rendered immediately. And yet the abortion industry fights those sorts of, I mean, this isn't, this isn't even about abortion. Yes or no. This is about providing medical care to people who need it. And these, it is mind boggling that these sorts of very easy, common sense, I've said it several times, I'm sorry, no-brainer types of reforms uh, are, are fought against. I mean, it just, it makes no sense. I mean, look, and again, this bracket out the question of abortion and just at a, at a basic human level, if someone is hurt or sick or they require medical care, that, like let's let's just let that happen, uh, and yet and yet people push back on it because they are stuck in their their political paradigm and they don't want to give any ground. That is just so like we don't do this in other issue areas, but yet we do it here, and it is it is so grotesque. Yeah, Brent, that's exactly right, man. We know uh, as Christians that the Good Samaritan parable applies, like we, we believe it applies to life in the womb. We know it applies to born people laying there. So that's all we're asking for right now, is if a child is laying there fighting for its life and a doctor is standing by, that they not just stand by, but they act to save the life of this child. And it makes no sense, except from a spiritual standpoint. It reveals the lower G God of our age, uh, that rules and reigns in the hearts of those who are not Christ. And like Dr. Morris said before, our enemy hates little babies because our Savior came as a little baby, the God-man, to save to save us. So I just wanted to read a couple sentences from this article to sum it up. Uh, and it says, the bill is important because current federal law lacks sufficient legal protection and medical provision for children who survive failed abortions, which you've heard us say is just unconscionable. Um, withholding medical care from such an infant denies the human dignity affirmed to that precious child by God. Such a callous dereliction of responsibility by the legal system also denies that child's basic human right of life as guaranteed by the United States Constitution. So we need to pray toward the end that these children will be protected and continue to work toward that end, which, which we will be doing. And it's our privilege to be able to do that. 
Next up is an article that's a part of an interview series that we have been doing, and we've highlighted several times where we're interviewing different authors about the topic of their book. So Andrew Bertadotti, our intern, interviews Lamar Hardwick with an article titled, How Can Churches Be More Inclusive of Disabled Persons? And I just thought that this article and this interview was so helpful. Lamar Hardwick's book is titled Disability and the Church, A Vision for Diversity and Inclusion. And a lot of times when we talk about diversity, many of us think about it as far as socioeconomic diversity or uh, ethnic racial diversity, and we fail to think about those um, who are absent from our churches who are of various levels of ability. And when we look at... um, the parable of the wedding feast, when the father invites uh, the people who are people with special needs, people with disabilities to come in and to to eat at the banqueting table, that's what our churches should look like as well. And the really interesting thing about Lamar, the author of this book, is that he was 36 years old and he was a pastor when he realized that he was on the autism spectrum and he was diagnosed with Asperger's. And so it it began to make sense to him a lot of the ways that he had struggled, but it also opened his eyes to how we needed to make ways to open the doors to people in the disability community. I just thought it was such a helpful article and I would highly recommend it to you. Lindy, that's really good and so worthwhile. I'll be honest and say that for the longest time, uh, thinking about people with disabilities in terms of how they relate even to uh, the local church. That was something that wasn't even on my radar until I was in church uh, about a decade ago, honestly. And I was uh, befriended a guy who was blind. He had been blind since birth. And so sitting there and talking to him, having conversations and trying to understand how everything is different uh, for him uh, than it is for me in terms of our experience of just walking into church and seeing and understanding things, uh, it really, in a in a very real way, changed uh, my perspective on what the church can and should do to minister to those with all kinds of uh, special needs and to be aware of those people, to make our churches places where they feel welcomed and invited and cared for. Uh, because for us, it's so easy for us, if you don't struggle with any of these given things, to just not have them on your radar. And that's not because anyone's necessarily a bad person or anything. It's because they don't, they don't affect us in the same way. But part of caring for our brothers and sisters is seeing uh, the, the special things about them and the, the unique ways that things can be challenging or that we can create opportunities for them. That's an important phrase that you said, Josh, on your radar, because I think that that is the case for a lot of people. And that is why we try to put out the types of articles that we do. That's the importance of reading widely so that these things might come onto our radars. Um, Really, that's a benefit of social media these days because we are exposed to more people and communities than we would normally be. There are so many more things on my radar now being at the ERLC in the midst of the work that we do than was before. And I just thought this was really interesting. Lamar said uh, in his interview, he said, the disability community is actually the largest minority group in the world. Around 20% of the world's population identifies with some form of disability. To have a robust and honest conversation about diversity, we must turn our eyes to the largest and often marginalized minority group in the world. Again, something I would have never known But now that our eyes and ears are open to this, I pray that the Lord helps us move forward in a way that makes changes in our churches, that our churches would more reflect who our Savior is. And then the final article that I wanted to highlight is by our colleague Jill Wagner, and it's a book review, and it's titled, How Learning About Trauma Changed My Life, Learning from The Body Keeps the Score. I've heard a lot about this book, but it is the subtitle is Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. And the author talks about how just various types of, of trauma could be, you know, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, growing up in an alcoholic family, how that affects every aspect of our body. And for people who are interacting with people who have dealt with trauma, which is more people than we might realize in our lives. Um, We need to be intentional about the way that we're interacting with them. And that's exactly what Jill says. She says it has changed her life and changed her ministry. And the anecdote, one of the anecdotes she uses is talking about being at Bible study. And they were talking about the topic of mental illness. And she noticed a woman had come 
with a gentleman who hadn't been there before, and he he wasn't talking, and Jill just happened to talk about reading this book and and uh, learning about people with PTSD and how it's really changing her interactions with people. And the man raised his hand and said, I have PTSD, and I it's really hard for me to come to places like this. We're all sitting close. If If I didn't have a friend here, I wouldn't have come. I have friends who wouldn't come. And Jill was just so surprised and realized uh, the providence of reading this book. So again, this is an opportunity for us to be exposed to something that may not be on our radar, but I think it's extremely, extremely important so that as the church, we can minister with the love and the heart of Christ to people who have faced really hard things in their lives. You know, for me, it, it just it reminds me that issues like trauma and more broadly like mental health, I feel like we're only just now really beginning to understand that area and the importance of of, of the different ways that the experiences and the effects of what we experience, uh, the the ways that can really weigh on us. And, uh, and having empathy uh, towards those who are experiencing various aspects of, of mental health uh, issues. Like we, uh, we as Christians uh, should be the ones uh, who are there to, uh, to serve them first. Brent, that's helpful. And you're right. This is something, a topic that was taboo in years past. You know, our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation, and maybe that's why it's just now coming to the forefront and the walls are coming down and people are feeling more comfortable and less shamed to be talking about these struggles. And the first place they should feel comfortable is with believers and in the church. So these articles that I was able to share today are just I just felt like they were so important, and they're just a taste of the things that we're covering and wanting to expose um, you as our listeners to, the readers um, who visit our site, again, so that we might holistically care for people as we minister to them, uh, as we minister the gospel to them in the name of Christ. Josh and Brent, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Brent, it's time for that culture rundown. All right, so we begin this week with multiple news items on the international front. Prince Philip passed away is what is uh, leading us out here. So last week after we recorded, the world learned of the news out of the UK of the death of Queen Elizabeth's husband. CNN reports that Prince Philip, the lifelong companion of Queen Elizabeth II and the longest serving consort in British history, died at the age of 99. In a statement, Buckingham Palace said, it is with deep sorrow that Her Majesty the Queen announces the death of her beloved husband, His Royal Highness, the Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. His Royal Highness passed away peacefully this morning at Windsor Castle. So Josh, Lindsay, I know uh, the both of you are avid uh, royals watchers, and uh, obviously this is uh this this gives folks just like y'all uh, quite a bit to uh, to discuss. The thing about Prince Philip is just the amazing. Well, seemingly, I, I have not read a lot about it, and I actually have not watched The Crown yet. Uh, but the the seventy three year marriage that he had with Queen Elizabeth, which is just incredible, especially by today's standards. She called him, I believe, her strength and stay which is just so sweet. And especially in in that culture and in the times that they grew up in, I can imagine it was hard for him to take a step back and be the public support to his wife instead of vice versa. And again, culturally and but he did. And so I, I just am interested to watch Queen Elizabeth to see how she does in the next, over the next few, you know, months, years, or if she doesn't start to decline a bit with her strength and stay gone. Yeah, it was, um, you know, still shocking news. Uh, I am somebody who pays attention to all the uh, things royal. And Lindsay, I cannot believe you've never seen The Crown. So here's a big plug for The Crown. If you've never watched it, you should because it is really excellent. The staff at the ERLC, particularly the women at the ERLC, were so taken up with this that they created a new channel in Slack called Royals uh, so that they could follow all of the 
well, all of the news and developments surrounding this. Also, uh, interesting, on the same day that Prince Philip died, uh, the American rapper DMX also died. He died at 50, uh, where Prince Philip died at the age of 99. And DMX was known as kind of like an angry rapper uh, early you know, early on in his career. But it's interesting that in later in life, uh, the thing that he did, especially, especially during the pandemic, he was leading Bible studies that I think he was streaming online every day. And so anyway, uh, also noteworthy. Thank you, Josh. I mean, you know, DMX passing, he's he's a bit of uh, hip hop royalty, if you will. Uh, but Lindsay, I really appreciate the fact that you you focused in on their marriage, which I mean, gosh, uh, what an incredible uh, testament to marriage to be able to survive all the experiences that come with being in the public spotlight as a member of the royal family. So uh, our our thoughts and prayers uh, go out to the folks of the United Kingdom and and obviously to the royal family. Uh, this is a season of, of, of loss for them. Staying on the international front, uh, these next two stories are actually about Russia. So from NBC News, Russia is under fire from the U.S. government through, uh, through sanctions. Uh, it was announced this week. The U.S. is hitting Russia with fresh sanctions for interference in the 2020 presidential election, a sweeping cyber attack against American government and corporate networks, and other activities. President Joe Biden signed an executive order Thursday morning to strengthen his administration's response to Russia, the White House said. Under the order, the Treasury Department has blacklisted six Russian technology companies that provide support to the cyber program run by Russia's intelligence services. The Treasury Department also sanctioned 32 entities and individuals for, quote, carrying out Russian government-directed attempts to influence the 2020 U.S. presidential election and other acts of information and interference. Uh, This comes at the same moment as Russia is making some very disturbing moves on the border of Ukraine. Tens of thousands of Russian troops are massing near the Ukrainian border with convoys of tanks, and it seems to be a deadly escalation in the grinding trench war in eastern Ukraine. Quote, we're now seeing the largest concentration of Russian forces on Ukraine's borders since 2014, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said Tuesday after flying to NATO's headquarters in Brussels, Belgium. That is a deep concern not only to Ukraine, but to the United States. Western officials and experts are now trying to decipher what Moscow might be planning. Is Vladimir Putin testing President Biden's medal, or is he actually trying to spark a fresh military conflict on the fringes of Europe? And this is kind of borrowing from a friend of the podcast, uh, David French, who wrote last week about some of the uh, simmering trouble spots around the world where he said, admittedly, look, I'm not trying to be an alarmist, but there are some, there are some hot spots that definitely need attention around the globe. And, uh, Russia taking what seems to be a very provocative stance here on the border of, of Ukraine. Gosh, that, that seems to be a tad alarming, uh, to say the least. Yeah, Brent, it's, um, We've been watching these uh, concerning developments in Russia take place for basically a decade. Uh, Mitt Romney started to sound the alarm about Russia when he was running for president back ahead of the 2012 election. It has been deeply concerning to to watch all of these developments and to see, once again, Russia's encroachment on the territory of Ukraine. Growing up, I had a friend who was actually in one of my mom's uh, ESL classes that she taught who was from Russia, and her family had fled Russia because of the conditions there. They actually were doing really well in Russia financially, but then they had to give all of that up and start from the ground up here in America. And it just makes me realize what hardship so many people live through, uh, especially over in that area of the world. And so I can only imagine what it's like for the citizens of Russia living through something like this. Uh, We're going to come back closer to home, but a quick uh, warning for listeners that might have uh, some some small children around. Uh, This next news item is uh, going to be a little heavier. uh, So you might want to might want to send them away or just uh, press forward for uh, three or four minutes. Unrest continues on the streets of Minneapolis this week after the fatal shooting of an unarmed black man by a police officer. 
ABC News reports Kim Potter, the white police officer who shot and killed Dante Wright, a 20-year-old black man during a traffic stop in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, was charged Wednesday with second-degree manslaughter, authorities said. Potter, a 26-year veteran of the Brooklyn Center Police Department, submitted her resignation on Tuesday following Sunday's afternoon fatal Sunday afternoon's fatal shooting. As police tried to take Wright into custody, he got back into the car, police said. Potter then announced that she would use the taser on Wright, according to the Washington County Attorney's Office. She pulled her Glock 9mm handgun with her right hand and pointed it at Wright, saying again that she would tase him, prosecutors said in a statement. Potter said, taser, 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 and pulled the trigger on her handgun. Uh, And that is... Uh, Mrs. Potter's uh, explanation here is that she thought she was pulling out her taser and mistakenly uh, she pulled out her her nine millimeter gun, fatally shooting uh, Dante Wright. Uh, This has led to, uh, at least as of now, as as of this recording, uh, four straight days of unrest on the streets of Minneapolis. And it just seems like here we are again, uh, where uh, an unarmed black man has been shot, and uh, this is just a yet again a a moment in our culture uh, where we're we're having to reckon with this. You know, it feels like it's been years on end of watching in different cities across the United States these tragic events play out over and over again. And just trying to be a good listener in hearing from a lot of my black friends, particularly my my friends who are black males, about their experience, about their emotions and what they're feeling. Even right now, I don't have any words. I'm totally at a loss for how to how to even think about the fact that here we are again. This particular situation is terrible and tragic. And assuming that, you know, th- this officer the details of the story are exactly what was said. It is still an unspeakable tragedy. But if you are a member of the black community in the United States right now, it doesn't really matter what the explanation is. You're just looking at one more in a long line of inexcusable and horrific killings of black Americans. And it's devastating. It is tragic. And I think that it, because of what has been happening leading up to this, it makes it harder to process the story that's being shared and to take, it makes it harder for many in our country to take this officer at her word if indeed um, it was accidental. It's hard to believe when it's just, or hard to process when it's just one in the number of many killings of particularly black men that the black community is witnessing, which I cannot imagine as a white female, I cannot imagine uh, the angst and and the pain that that might um, bring up and the emotional turmoil and the frustration. So I think you might have said this, Josh, and you've said it in the past, but the, the best thing that we can the church can do now is listen, exercise compassion, and continue to be a voice for and a demonstration of the human dignity of every single person uh, around us, regardless of um, age, stage, skin color, or ability. And that's the way that that the church can um, point to Christ in the midst of this crisis. Moving on, uh, a significant pro-life win occurred this week uh, in American courts. So Baptist Press is reporting this. Pro-life leaders praised a federal appeals court decision upholding an Ohio law that prohibits a doctor from knowingly performing an abortion because an unborn child has been diagnosed with Down syndrome. The full Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals in Cincinnati overturned in a 9-7 to opinion on Tuesday a preliminary injunction endorsed by its own three-judge panel against Ohio's 2017 
Down Syndrome Non-Discrimination Act. Quote, too many have used a diagnosis of Down syndrome as a reason to rob preborn children not only of their inherent dignity, but also of their lives, said our own Elizabeth Graham, Vice President of Operations and Life Initiatives for the RLC. She continued, that ought to both break our hearts and shock our consciences. Uh, So there are a number of states uh, that have measures like this either uh, currently passed into law that that have kind of been on hold or uh, working their way through the legislature. Uh, This uh, this is certainly a really welcome development. It does set up, um, I believe, a a split-circuit decision. So another court of appeals uh, has ruled a different way, which actually means uh, there's a a good chance that the Supreme Court – uh, will uh, potentially take up this issue, um, and um, and and that is certainly something that uh, that we can hope for. And you know, I think this raises another good point. We should try and invite Elizabeth Graham onto uh, the podcast at some point to talk through. Uh, some of our life initiatives at the RLC. Absolutely, we should, Brent. And I bet that we know how to make that happen, especially because one of our uh, one of our faithful podcast team members serves under Elizabeth and I'm sure knows her schedule, et cetera, et cetera. Shout out to Megan Smith. Um, Also, I'm glad you brought this up, Brent, because it's, number one, it's so important. Number two, this pro-life decision and this win is the subject of our weekly lead article this week that goes out today, if if you're listening to this today when our podcast releases. Uh, So if you're not subscribed to the weekly, you can do that on our homepage and just enter in your email. And that way you get articles like this one explaining this wonderful pro-life win and giving you a rundown of ERLC articles and rundown of things going on in DC and important things happening in our culture. The other thing that I wanted to say about this is similar to the Born Alive bill. I think this should be something that is a no-brainer in our society. Um, And it just reveals the fallenness of our human hearts that we would think because somebody is not born with a certain level of abilities, certain genetic code uh, lining up correctly, um, because maybe a, a lifespan might be shorter or life could be harder, that that would mean that they're not entitled to life. It's a no-brainer that we protect individuals with Down syndrome and any other disabilities out there. So I'm thankful for this win and for the statement that it makes. Moving over to COVID, a big story that is still developing uh, is underway with one of uh, the vaccines. So Axios is reporting the U.S. Food and Drug Administration on Tuesday recommended an immediate halt the use of the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine, citing cases of a rare blood clot disorder that six women developed within two weeks of receiving the shot. The FDA's recommendation was issued, quote, out of an abundance of caution and to prepare health providers to recognize and treat patients appropriately, since these types of blood clots require a different kind of treatment. The White House said in a statement Tuesday that the pause will not have a significant impact on the administration's vaccination plans, noting that it has secured enough Moderna and Pfizer doses for 300 million Americans. Nonetheless, some White House officials and other health experts are concerned that the FDA's decision could increase vaccine hesitancy. And, um, you know, look, this is in a moment where we are definitely seeing some states, uh, once again, with rising cases, uh, Michigan comes to, to mind in particular. Uh, I mean, cases there are, are skyrocketing. As a matter of fact, uh, a number of the cases are actually school-age children. Um, you know, seeing something like this uh, obviously is a, a bit of a concern, um, but thankfully, with the other two vaccines uh, that have been approved so far for use in the United States, nothing like this uh, has been uncovered. Um, and, you know, while some folks are, are fretting that this could increase vaccine hesitancy, you know, it's worth noting that it should also point out that this this kind of speaks to the integrity of the American system for, for kind of double-checking uh, all these vaccines. I mean, look, if they were able to find six cases out of the nearly 7 million people that have gotten this so far, 
uh, <laughs> gosh, they they've located you know needles in a in a haystack. Uh, so that's actually really impressive too, and that should give people confidence in the in the regulatory system that we have uh, with these vaccines. I, I think. Uh, what what do y'all think about this? Actually, breaking news, Brent. This morning on the news, a seventh woman has developed some blood clots. But still, I, I think if the message was um, said in the way that you just portrayed, it would be received much better. As in, it's amazing that we have a Food and Drug Administration that can regulate the safety of these medicines, that they are watching to make sure that these vaccines are safe and effective and that side effects would be extremely rare, uh, rather than the way that I see it coming off to many people that I already know who have vaccine hesitancy. Uh, It kind of maybe proves their point. I found this really good response by an epidemiologist who put out a graphic that showed the risk of blood clots with this vaccine as compared to other things that that many people do. This is at the bottom, 0.0004%. You're more likely to get a blood clot from, and what's listed on this particular graphic, because many Americans engage in this issue or in this activity. Smoking has a higher chance of point. 1-8%, and getting a blood clot from an actual COVID infection if you weren't vaccinated, which was fascinating to me, which is 16.5%. So if there were some clarifying remarks there, I think it would go over much better. Yeah, and I think you just have to remember, like I share the same concerns that have been communicated here by some of these White House officials. Public opinion most people don't read every piece of breaking news. They don't have time to follow the news cycle and everything that is out there. And so they're following just major currents here. And so when they hear, oh, they've they've paused this distribution of this vaccine out of an abundance of caution, the takeaway for most people is, oh, well, it must not be safe. It must be dangerous. And at a time when we're trying to increase confidence uh, in the efficacy of the vaccines, this is uh, not really a welcomed thing. I mean, certainly we want to respect the FDA. We know they play a vital role in regulating important drugs, not just COVID vaccines, but all drugs of all kinds that that are, uh, you know, life-saving in many cases. But this is the kind of thing that really makes you scratch your head uh, when you're looking at the well, infinitesimal uh, number of people that this has affected compared to the millions and millions of people who have so far received these injections uh, of the vaccine. It is quite difficult to understand. And it is, I guess, the bottom line is, I hope it's resolved immediately. Well, we should have a resolution to this over the the next few days. Um, They have, they decided there was a uh, an open public meeting uh, about this decision, and officials with the FDA and, and CDC uh, said that they're just going to wait for some some more data to come in before they make some sort of final determination on the the next steps here. So probably by the time uh, that uh, we record this next week, we'll we'll know just a little bit more. Finally, from the sports world, a no no in Chicago. See what I did there? See, kind of kind of brought that. All right. CBS Sports uh, was reporting this. The perfect game club in baseball nearly had a new member. A no-hitter ended up being the consolation prize. White Sox starter Carlos Rodon has thrown a no-hitter, and he was perfect through eight and a third innings. That means no hits, no walks, no one reached base. Uh, So that's actually pretty incredible in and of itself. Uh, He did hit Cleveland catcher Roberto. Roberto Perez with a pitch on the foot with two strikes and one out in the ninth. That would end up being the only blemish for Rodon. The, the White Sox ended up beating Cleveland eight to nothing in a game which was a pure gem. So I'm obviously a huge baseball nerd. Uh, getting to see a, a perfect game occur, which I mean, it is fairly rare in baseball history. He was he was this close, this close, and and still uh, he got a no hitter, which is which is also not something that just happens all the time. Uh, so it's uh, it was a pretty incredible pitching feat that happened. Several of us uh, on the URLC team were 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 talking about this last night uh, as it occurred, or Wednesday night as it occurred. So, because you're talking about baseball, it gives me a chance to insert this into the conversation that has nothing to do with the particular person you're talking about. But something I saw on the news this morning did you hear about the Dodgers player, Justin Turner, 
uh, who hit a home run and it went into a fan's nachos and the nacho cheese exploded all over him. <laughs> the video is pretty funny. So the guy got the home run ball. His He's covered in nacho cheese. And Justin Turner saw the video and sent him a new order of nachos, apparently. And now he calls himself oh, the awesome. nacho man. Nacho, nacho man. Nacho, nacho man. <laughs> <laughs> This is the kind of high-quality high content that I'm here for. Uh, circling, circling, back to, to, <laughs> circling back to the White Sox, uh, if you haven't watched the clip of the almost no-hitter, you should watch it because uh, what's really interesting is, I'll call him Carlos so I don't have to butcher his last name, but anyway, Carlos, who was pitching, uh, after he hit the batter on the foot, it hit him in his left foot, and Carlos was so angry because... You know, if you've watched baseball at all, it's really easy to move your foot out of the way of a pitch. If the ball's going to hit you in, like, you know, in your midsection, it's going to hit you in the back. There's not a lot you can do about that in many cases, but like you can move your foot out of the way. And by just, you know, standing his ground, Roberto Perez was able to ruin what would have almost certainly been a, a perfect game. So, man, sad trombone again. What, what, what I loved is right after the game, one of the reporters said, Wow, man, you just do a no hitter. That's incredible. Like, what's on your mind and he goes the toe ball the toe ball is on my mind (laughs) even after making baseball history he he couldn't he couldn't not talk about that one moment okay just back to the nacho man again i'm sorry but i just found an article and there are just some quotes that are gold that i just need to read real quick so they talk to this guy and he says my first thought was oh no this ball is coming straight at me (laughs) and he said my second thought was try not to interfere with the play And then he says, I felt like I blacked out for a few seconds. I didn't notice I was covered in cheese until after putting my hand up. And then the player, Turner, who ordered him a fresh order of nachos, said, I felt bad, Turner said. I'm sure it was not a cheap plate of nachos. (laughs) That is the kind of quality entertainment I am here for. And we are thankful that you are here for that. And so with that, Lindsay Josh, that's your look at this week in culture. So guys, it's a big one. We're about to talk to our friend and longtime colleague, Gary Lancaster. Gary actually predates everyone involved uh, with the ERLC podcast by many years. He has been with the ERLC for, I think, around a decade. I'll let him clarify that as we are going through the course of this conversation. But we are so sad uh, about Gary leaving our team, but we are so excited for him and his family as he takes yet another step forward in his career. So this is a bittersweet moment for us to enjoy together, but we're happy to spend a few minutes talking with our friend Gary. So Gary, we're just incredibly thankful for you, man, and glad to spend this time talking with you. As we're getting started, look, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your family, and people are going to love what they get to hear. So bring it on. First of all, let me just say, if you're familiar with Dude Perfect, they've done a couple editor's editions. If you look at the stats on those, they don't get the views. So that's what you're about to have happen on your podcast. (laughs) So about yourself and your family. I would say I'm a self-aware introvert who has dreams of having some extroverted abilities, but then that just wears me out thinking about it. (laughs) Born and raised in Texas. I will say, though, much to the dismay of my fellow native Texans being in Tennessee for over a decade now, Tennessee is home really for me and my family. And uh, though the one thing I'll I'll hang on Texas is that uh, the barbecue is king. I'm all about that brisket. Uh, my family been married to my beautiful wife for 15 years, and we are in the midst of raising two awesome kids of 10 and 7 years old. Uh, we got our hands full with them, but uh, we're we're enjoying it. Awesome. And uh, in addition to being a dad and an audio producer, uh, you're also a coach. What sports do you coach? Yeah, that's one thing I never thought I would do. I have coached uh, baseball and for the first time ever soccer this season, but uh, I really enjoy it and. Well, I thought I would always be the dad that would just sit in the sidelines cheering for my kids. For some reason, I just caught the itch, and I really enjoy being out there and watching the kids grow. So, Gary, it is so good to hear from you from behind the fourth dimension. Tell us, how long have you been at the ERLC? And remind listeners about what you do. Maybe give a little bit more detail. Yeah, so uh, I've actually been with the ERLC a little over a decade Um you know, my daughter was just six months old when I first started with the RLC, and she's about to be 11 now. So more about what I do exactly, there's a reason why I'm not on the mic 
and I'm behind the mic because for most people, what I do is probably pretty boring, but I love it. I love being on the creative side of things. I love production. I love having the ability to create and shape content alongside uh, people like the ERLC. But in order to keep your listeners engaged here, we don't need to get into uh, the details of what that looks like. <laughs> We're thankful. We're thankful that uh, that it's Gary's world and we just live in it. Speaking of, what are some of the more memorable experiences that you've had in your your time of service at the ERLC, Gary Lancaster? And you can yeah. go all the way back to the RLL days if you need to. Yeah, I'm not going to go that far back. Uh, but a, a funny memory for sure that uh, stands out to me on the top of my head here is in the early years of Dr. Moore uh, being at the ERLC, we had a, a couple team members that were practical jokers. And one specifically, uh, he led the, the video creation at that time for the ERLC. And he and I worked closely together quite often on some projects. And there was a video that he was working on of Dr. Moore. And he had this uh, he had this still shot, you know, of Dr. Moore in this really nice sports coat, nice crisp white shirt underneath, uh, just looking real dapper. And uh, and we got together and, and thought it would be fun to to put together a special uh, cover of Dr. Moore on GQ. And so we we built that out in, in Photoshop and a little nervous, you know, a little nervous to share that with uh, with Dr. Moore and, and everyone else. But, you know, it was all in good fun and uh, it, it ended up being pretty funny. That is hilarious. That, I have yeah, not heard that is of great. this before. And we'd like to see the archival uh, edition of the GQ with Russell Moore. Yeah, it was, it was pretty good, Josh. And, you know, to, to reflect on more of a serious topic and something that was a highlight for me at my time at the RLC was the MLK 50 conference. To be a part of that, that meant a lot to me. And uh, you know, I'll, I'll just say that the issue of reconciliation and just recognizing that everyone is made in the image of God is, is something that has always been um, something that has stirred my heart. I mean, ever since I was a kid, it's, it's just one of those things that the Lord has really put on my heart. So to be a part of, of that, even the small role that I played in that conference, but just to be there and to be in the presence of that and to hear those teachings and those the words there and to see the work that, um, that meant a lot to me. And it's, it's definitely something I'm not going to forget. And I'm just so grateful and, and humbled, really, that that I was able to work alongside the ERLC at that event. That was an incredible conference to be a part of. I'm glad that I was at the ERLC as well during that time. Gary, I'm surprised that, that one of your most memorable experiences wasn't, it's a pandemic, and how we've driven you crazy throughout this entire thing. Try to forget that. Forget. Or, <laughs> and or giving you a run. Mousegate, yes. Mousegate, yes, the mouse in your car. The podcast where Josh saved the day. That's right. That is right. Yeah, that's that's why I bring it up. Yeah, well, I'm trying to get you thinking about all these nostalgic things, Gary, so you can answer this next question about what are you going to miss the most? Yeah, I think that's easy. Uh, It's going to be the people. Even as much as I wasn't around the office, as much as uh, everyone else as a contractor. I just have to say the ERLC is an incredible team of people, and... um, people who are passionate about the work and ultimately the gospel. And um, I remember when Dr. Moore came in to the RLC and, and, you know, his goal was to create this joyful band of warriors. And I just have to say, he's been able to do that. And, um, you know, it's, it's going to be the team and seeing the way you guys work together and ultimately together for the mission. Gary, we should have been having you share uh, a lot sooner than this. Hearing all these words of just encouragement is heartwarming. On a joking note, Gary, what we're going to miss the most is your poof, your hair poof that listeners don't get a chance to to see. Gary has this good head of hair, and he's got this, this poof that he's always representing. But you know who will hold the fort down just a little bit? He's not up to par with you, but just a little bit is our very own Brent. He will keep the poof tradition going. Josh once had it going pretty well. I did. Josh had the, but the shag going brought, during the pandemic. Yes. <laughs> the pandemic has brought on a, a whole new hairstyle for me. So we'll <laughs> see if uh, the poof comes back. Uh, but yes, Brent and Gary, feathered and lethal. They're, you know, heads of hair that many men dr- only dream of. <laughs> feathered and lethal? I've never heard that before. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I stole it from the movie. 
All right, so you are a grilling savant, and your your Instagram feed is nothing but you know pictures and videos of the the different ways that uh, you utilize your your grill. Uh, and so, like, why? Tell us why is it that you love grilling so much? What is it about uh, the art of grilling that that speaks to you on uh, on such a personal level? Well, first of all, Brent, we've got to get the terminology right. What I'm doing is called smoking, the low and slow style of cooking, using indirect heat. But, you know, every now and then, <laughs> I'll get that charcoal nice and hot and get some burgers on there. I'll do some grilling. <laughs> but, uh, you know, for me, it started, like I said, I've, I've been in Tennessee for over a decade now. And one of the things that I have always missed the most, and I just, I have to say it, even though Tennessee is home, the barbecue here is just, it's not it. And so... I just decided I've got to learn how to do this for myself because I need some good old Texas barbecue. And so that's what got me started on that. And uh, yeah, for me, like it, it has like, I like to do it the old school way, the offset smoker, burning real chunks of wood. And you're right. There's an art to it. You know, you got to maintain that fire. You got to maintain that consistent temperature for hours on end. It can be a chore. It can be work. But I'm telling you, the payoff is worth it. I mean, for me, that's what it's about. When I get to slice open that that cut of meat, share it with family and friends, I love it. There you have it, people. That's the Gary Lancaster, who we know and love, bringing you everything from the hair poof to the grilling skills to the Texas vernacular. So we are just grateful to God for you, Gary. We are thankful for uh, this. This podcast would not exist had it not been for your incredible labor and sometimes to your great consternation. And we are just incredibly grateful for you, man. Thank you for years and years of faithful service and uh, amazing friendship, and you will be missed. Well, I appreciate you guys uh, having me on here for a minute and uh, back at you. I'm going to miss each one of you and, and sitting here on Thursdays recording this with you guys. I'll miss it. Well, that's going to do it for the show today. We just want to say thanks so much for listening and a special thanks to Gary for all that he has done for us since the beginning of the podcast. This was a fun episode to reflect and to think about good times, and we wish him the very best in his future endeavors and know that we're going to remain great friends and servants of uh, the kingdom of Christ together uh, for the rest of our lives. And so uh, we are grateful for all of you that listen to the podcast every week. If you like the show and want to help spread the word, you can share this episode uh, on your social media accounts. You can also go into your podcast app and leave us a rating or a brief review. But for Lindsay and Brent and myself, we want to say thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back next week with more content.